So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, and please stand with me as we read the Word of God. Some would argue that this is the point of the worship service that is most pure, just reading the Word of God. But we'll have some things to share and talk about. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also been believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You may be seated. So this letter, this epistle, um, is quite rich. Of course, the whole of scripture is rich, but this is tall clover, for sure. Martin Luther claimed that the epistle to the Romans is the purest expression of the gospel in all of scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones agreed, but added, if that is true, and it is, then the epistle to the Ephesians is the most sublime and the most majestic expression of the gospel in all of scripture. Some have called Ephesians the crown and climax of Pauline theology. And Lloyd-Jones notes in this epistle The Apostle Paul marvels at the glory and the majesty and the riches of God's plan of redemption in Christ. John MacArthur notes that Ephesians has been titled by some as the believer's bank, right? Um, The Christian's checkbook in the treasure house of the Bible. It's important to have a little general view of the situation of Ephesus 
of the character of its people and of the time and manner in which the gospel was introduced there in order to have a correct understanding of this letter. Anachar gives this description. Ephesus was a celebrated city of Ionia in Asia Minor. It's about 40 miles south of Smyrna and near the mouth of the river Caister. The river, though inferior in beauty to the meander which flows south of it, waters a fertile valley of the ancient Ionia. Ionia was the most beautiful and fertile part of Asia Minor, was settled almost wholly by Greek colonies, and it embosomed Pergamos, Smyrna, Ephesus, and Miletus. The climate of Ionia is represented as remarkably mild, and the air is pure and sweet. And this region became early celebrated for everything that constitutes softness and effeminacy in life. Its people were distinguished for amiableness and refinement of manners, and also for luxury, for music, dancing, and the seductive arts festivals that occupied them at home or attracted them to neighboring cities where the men appeared in magnificent habits, the women in all the elegance of female ornament, and with all the desire of pleasure. It was a rich region of the country. seems to have risen into importance mainly um, because it became the favorite resort of foreigners in the worship of Diana. We just talked about her in um, Sunday school. It owed owed its celebrity to its temple more than to anything else. Uh, This city was once, however, the most splendid city in Asia Minor. Stevens, who was a geographer, gives the title uh, the most illustrious. Pliny refers to Ephesus as the ornament of Asia. In Roman times, it was the metropolis of Asia and unquestionably rose to a degree of splendor that was surpassed by few, if any, oriental cities. The city was most celebrated for the Temple of Diana. The temple was 425 feet in length, 225, or 220 feet in width. It was encompassed by 127 pillars, each 60 feet in height, which were presented by as many kings. And that comes from Albert Barnes' notes. The Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the worship of this goddess was jealously guarded. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. So the theme of this epistle, the theme of the letter, is God. Christ and the church. Ephesians, along with Colossians, emphasizes the truth that Christ is the body of which, or I'm sorry, the church is the body of which Christ is the head. And while Paul had mentioned the same truth earlier in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, he develops it more fully here. There's no higher point of revelation than is reached in this epistle, which shows the believer as seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and exhorts him to live in accordance with this high calling. 
So Ephesians falls into two main parts. Each part has three chapters. One to three, the apostle tells believers what they are in Christ. In chapters four through six, he tells them what they are to do because they are in Christ. So we have theology and practice. Some have suggested that this epistle may be summarized or can be summarized in the following way. Sitting, walking, and standing. Sitting because of our position. The believer is seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. God, and raised us up with him. God did that. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. So that's our position. Walking, the responsibility of the believers to walk, to walk worthy of the calling to which he's been called. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Um, Walking is another way to say your life, your, your lifestyle. And then standing. So this walk is further seen as a warfare in which the believers engaged against Satan and all his hosts, and in which he is exhorted to stand against the wiles of the devil. So look at chapter 6, verse 11. The instruction is to put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians is in the same chronological group of Paul's epistles as Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians called collectively the prison epistles because they were written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So Paul evidently arrived in Rome in the spring of AD 61. The book of Acts speaks of Paul living two whole years in rented quarters, and that's in Acts uh, 28, which would bring him to about the spring of AD 63, and some would argue for a little later date, maybe as late as AD 65. But he was probably released before the burning of Rome in AD 64. Um, He references his release in Philippians and Philemon. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were dispatched at the same time by the same messengers, which would be Tychicus in Ephesians 6 and um, Onesimus in Colossians. So that's just a little bit of history and background on Ephesus and this church in Ephesians, or in in Ephesus, the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he begins the letter identifying himself Paul was formerly known as Saul, and we know that from Acts chapter 7. If you remember, um, they were stoning Stephen. In verse 58, those who were stoning Stephen 
um, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's been suggested that Saul, also known as Paul, took his name after King Saul, who was the tallest, most handsome Benjamite in Israel's history. We know that from 1 Samuel chapter 9. So Saul of Tarshish was a proud man. He saw himself as large, big. He was proud of his pedigree. He was proud of his education. He was proud of his zeal. You know, terms such as um, a violent prosecutor, a hater of Christians, one who despised the way, would be an accurate description of Saul of Tarsus. And we see that in Acts 22 and Philippians 3. R.C. Sproul mentioned that Saul was a modern-day Hitler in his time, terrorizing and harming the church. So Christ, in his great mercy and grace, appeared to Saul. You remember the story. He's on his way to Damascus to imprison families, tear them apart. Um, He was breathing out threats and violence. Christ appeared to him on the road. You remember the story. Knocked him down. Christ revealed his glory, spoke his word, and Saul was converted. He was humbled. Remember, he lost his sight. God had to send Ananias to him to lead him by the hand, literally. But he was also filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 13, that's where we see where he changed his name from Saul to Paul which means small. Saul met Jesus Christ, and he no longer saw himself as big, but as small. No longer proud, but humble. He had a complete change of heart, of mind, and of identity. Note Paul's new attitude here in these uh, next few verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So Paul goes from having an attitude of proud blasphemer, an arrogant persecutor, a violent aggressor, a heartless violent aggressor, to having an attitude of humility, seeing himself as the least of the apostles, least of the saints, and then finally the foremost of sinners. It seems like it's a digression, but it really is inverted. He's the least of the apostles, the least of the saints, and the foremost of sinners. 
Brothers and sisters, God dwells with the humble. As we humble ourselves, we draw near to God. Um, Isaiah 57, 15 says that God dwells in two places, the high and holy place and with the broken, contrite, and humble. So it's counterintuitive because we're all familiar with climbing the corporate ladder. But Paul, as he humbles himself and sees himself against the backdrop of Christ, draws near. There's a lesson for us. So he goes from having an attitude of proud blasphemer, an arrogant persecutor, a heartless, violent aggressor, to this attitude of humility. When a person sees Christ, they're no longer big in their own eyes. Christ is. So Paul, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus, apostolos, he's an apostle, he's a delegate, uh, especially an ambassador of the gospel, officially a commissioner of Christ, um, a messenger. He's one sent forth with orders. And Paul no longer carried the message or orders of the high, <clears throat> high priest or of the council of elders or of the Jewish leaders, which was a message of death. Remember, he went and got letters from the high priest that authorized him to drag people off and, and imprison them. He's not carrying those orders any longer. He's under new orders. The orders of Christ, he carried a new message, the message of life, the gospel. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Romans 1, 1, we covered this last week. Paul, a douloi, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ to, by the will of God. In Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The gracious will of God. Have you thought about that? The gracious will of God. Luke twelve thirty two. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Think about that. Apart from anything we've done, God the Father decided to give us life, to give us the kingdom. And Jesus is reassuring the flock. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. God has given you the kingdom it is the gracious will of God to give us Christ. It's what he wants to do. 
his gracious will to give us his Holy Spirit, to give us his word, to give us prayer, to give us the apostles and prophets, pastors, teachers, elders. That is the gracious will of God. To give us fellowship with the saints. To give us the Lord's table and baptism. To give us heaven. It is the gracious will of God to give us himself. God has given us himself. God's will. Look at verse 9 of Ephesians 1. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, in Christ. In verse 11 of of Ephesians 1, according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. The gracious will of God. Do you realize that there's nothing And there's no one who can thwart or prevent or interfere with God's will. Nothing in creation, nothing can interfere, prevent, or thwart the will of God. Listen to Isaiah. In fact, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 40, if you would. We'll read verse 13. Isaiah 40, 13. Isaiah 40, 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who has, or who as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult or who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. Nothing can stand against God. Paul was called to be an apostle by the will of God. God willed it, so Paul did it. And all believing saints in Christ have also been called by the will of God. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In that same hour, he, Christ, rejoiced, and some translations say greatly. He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And this is on the heels of the 70 coming back, just rejoicing in how God had used them. God's gracious will. 
Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me, to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, I love verse 23. Look at 23. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Do you see Christ this morning? Your eyes are blessed. Do you see Christ? You have Christ chose to open your eyes. The will of God. Ephesians 1.5, right there. <clears throat> he predestined us to a to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. God's will. John chapter 1, really familiar verse, uh, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the authority, the power to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, what's the next word? Man, but of God. And our dear beloved departed brother, R.C., who is in the presence of Christ, finally and forever satisfied, which is our destiny, he said this next verse was a seminal verse in his mind with regard to God's sovereignty and man's free will and salvation. It's Romans chapter 9, verse 16. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. And that's from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I just like the way it's translated. By the gracious will of God, Paul was called and placed as an apostle of Christ, and just so, by the gracious will of God, all believers are called and placed into the body of Christ. And that is a point of celebration, a point of rejoicing. I have asked myself, when my dad died, and I was with him, and he took his last breath, he was not a believer. And I said, Lord, why, why me? Why not him? And the Lord graciously answered, it's my will. It's what I wanted. Period. Helped me. God does what he wants to, according to his own pleasure. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. So this, this epistle... This letter was written specifically to the saints, not just the saints in Ephesus, since it's thought that this was a circular letter to go to all the churches and be read to all the churches in Asia Minor. It was written to the saints. Saints in every time and in every place. Ephesians is for all the saints for all time. Why does Paul refer to those in Ephesus as saints? What does Paul have in mind by using the term saints? What is a saint? 
It's the Greek word hagios. I probably butchered that, but hagios. And it's from the root hagos or hagos, which means an awful thing. An awful thing? A saint? And so we have, I mean, we might taste something and think, oh, that was awful. That's not what this means. Sacred, physically pure, morally blameless, consecrated, most holy, one thing, saint. Uh, From Thayer's Greek lexicon, it's translated religious awe, reverence, to venerate, revere, properly reverend, worthy of veneration. Hagios is used in Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 49. Mary says, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy, Hagios is his name. God, by his incomparable majesty, which is his alone, is defined in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and the four living creatures each one of them having six wings or full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Hagias is used of things which, on account of some connection with God, possess a certain distinction and claim to reverence, such as places sacred to God which are not to be profaned. There's a a scene where, where Stephen is making his defense, and he references Moses at the burning bush. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is connected to God. Hagios, holy. In Exodus 23, when they're hanging up the veil, because the, the Ark of the Covenant was coming in, the seat where God would meet with his people, and the veil was a partition because... The ark was Hagios, connected to God. Of persons whose services to, that God employs, such as the holy apostles, right? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, the mystery of Christ has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. There's a connection to God. Or the angels, Matthew 25, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The connection. Whatever God is connected to is holy. Holy. Set apart for him. The prophets, the holy prophets, Luke chapter 1, verse 70, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And they were only holy because God was connected. 
Saints are chosen and set apart by God to be, as it were, exclusively his own possession. Therefore, saints have that special connection to God. We're holy, holy saints. Hagios. Saints are holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Peter writes, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And listen, um, we might read that as a command, and it certainly is an instruction, but it's a promise. It's a promise. The covenant promise of God in Ezekiel 36, where we get a new heart, in verse 26. In verse 27, I will cause them to walk in my way and keep all my commandments. It's a promise. We shall be holy, for he is holy. So how is the saint defined in Scripture? Well, let's listen to what the Bible has to say. You don't have to turn to all these, but... Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed, God speaking, obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race. Peter picks up on this verse in Exodus. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember, to have fellowship, if we walk in the light As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ cleanses our sin, all our sin. Um, He says in verse 10, For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Daniel chapter 7, verse 18, But the saints of the highest one, we are the saints of the highest one, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. John 17, verse 14. Jesus' high priestly prayer is praying, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we see how the scripture defines a saint. God's own possession among all the peoples, Exodus 19.5. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation to God, Exodus 19.6. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. The people of God, 1 Peter 2.10. Saints of the highest one, Daniel 7.18. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.2. And saints by calling, and not of the world, 
We're not of the world. Jesus said, they're not of the world. He says, I'm not of the world. All Christians, listen to this quote by Matthew Henry. All Christians must be saints. And if they come not under that character on earth, they will never be saints in heaven. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful. Faithful in Christ Jesus. He calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful to believe in Christ. Faithful to hold fast to Christ. Faithful to the word of Christ. Faithful to walk in the ways of Christ. Faithful to the saints who are faithful. Again, from Matthew Matthew Henry, um, those are not saints who are not faithful. Believing in Christ, firmly adhering to him, and true to the profession that they make of relationship to their Lord. Note, it is the honor not only of ministers, but of private Christians, too. To, obtain, to have obtained mercy of the Lord, to be faithful. Faithfulness is required. So how are we to understand this word faithful? And what example or pattern should we look to in order to follow it? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Let a man so consider us, Paul says, as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Huperetes. Again, I probably butchered it, but huperetes in the Greek. Meaning an under rower. I'm sure the Apostle Paul would have had a picture in his mind of one of those Roman ships, you know, with the oars going up and down the sides. Huperetes, an under rower, anyone who serves with hands, a servant, anyone who aids another in any work. All the under rowers, think about this ship, they'd have to be in sync, rowing with the same rhythm and effort. You can imagine what it would be like if they were out of sync. Maybe you've been in a rowboat, and if someone's out of sync, it's, you're not going anywhere. You're going in circles or backing up or something. They would have to be in rhythm using the same effort as all the other under rowers who had been rowing according to the cadence of a coxswain. Does anybody here know what a coxswain is? Ever heard of that? Rowing teams? So on a rowing team, the coxswain, or simply the cox or coxie, is the member who sits in the stern, the rear of the boat, facing the bow, the front of the boat. The coxswain is responsible for steering and coordinating the power and rhythm of the rowers. In some capacities, the coxswain is responsible for implementing the training regiment or race plan. The coxswain is the coach. A coxswain is necessary in the first place because the rowers, think about this, the rowers sit with their backs to the direction of travel. Christ is our coxswain. 
He knows the direction. He knows which way we're to go. Christ is who we row for. Christ is who we serve. Jesus Christ is our example of of faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, holy brethren, there's our word again, hagios, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Christ is, is the example of faithfulness. Christ carried out all that the Father told him and directed him to do. And that's what we're to do. By God's grace, his power and mercy. John chapter 12, verse 49, For I did not speak, Jesus speaking, on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. He's our example of faithfulness to do what Christ has told us, just as he did what his father told him. And what what has he told us? This is how we know God, through a book. It's all contained in his word. John 17, 7 and 8, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. This is Jesus' prayer. Well, actually, he's talking to the disciples there. But for the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. And it is Jesus' prayer. I'm sorry, I got confused there. So Jesus is saying again, I've been faithful, Father. I've been faithful to you. I've done what you asked me to do. Ephesians 1, 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the apostolical benediction. By grace, we are to understand the free and undeserved love and favor of God. And those graces of the Spirit which proceed from him, no peace without grace, No peace nor grace, but from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These peculiar blessings proceed from God, not as creator, but as a father by special relation. And they come from our Lord Jesus Christ, who having purchased them for his people, has a right to bestow them upon his people. Indeed, the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus had already received grace and peace, but the increase of these is very desirable. And the best saints stand in need of fresh supplies of graces of the Spirit and cannot but desire to improve and grow. And therefore they should pray each for himself and and all for one another that such blessings may still abound to them. That was from Matthew Henry as well. Yeah, I think someone said, you cannot know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. 
And all of that by his will. Grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved. It's a point of rejoicing. My hope and prayer as we get into this letter is that God will minister to us, talk to us about what we have in Christ, reminding us of our high position. I'm going to close with this story. Maybe you've heard it. Um, She had gone down in history as America's greatest miser. Yet when she died in 1916, Hetty Green left an estate valued at over $100 million. She ate cold oatmeal because it cost to heat it. Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free clinic that his case became incurable. She was wealthy, yet she chose to live as a pauper. Eccentric? Certainly. Crazy? Perhaps. But no one could prove it. She was so foolish that she hastened her own death by bringing on an attack of apoplexy while arguing about the value of drinking skimmed milk. But Hetty Green is an illustration, really, of too many Christians. We have a limitless supply in the heavenlies. We should not be living like spiritual paupers. We should be going to the throne of grace to find help and grace in time of need, right? Because it's open. Christ has made a way. We can go and make a withdrawal from the throne of God. May we all use our Christian checkbook to make large and frequent withdrawals from the believer's bank found in the treasure house of this epistle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who has called us to this place, opened our minds, our hearts, our understanding to the riches of your word, your truth. Father, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We want to come to this letter and understand all that you have for us. Not only just Ephesians, but all of Scripture. Lord, we understand also that we come to you in faith. Help us, Lord. Increase our faith because we will miss the treasures that you have given to us if we do not believe Increase our faith. Forgive us, Lord, of our sin, the sin of unbelief. Cause us to walk in your way, and we ask it in your name. Amen.